0: We're looking in this series at Daniel. What does it look like? How how might we be resilient disciples in a complex world? And you'll know a bit about that through what your family is experiencing, through what you're experiencing in your workplace. Uh, throughout your you're experiencing in your university, in all the different contexts God has placed us. How can we be resilient disciples in a complex world? And today we're looking at Daniel 3. And what happened is that um, after the kingdom of Judah was defeated and con- you know, conquered, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took a whole lot of people into exile and placed them into positions of influence and authority. And the purpose behind it was to inculcate them, to kind of shape these key leaders... In order to kind of make sure that they weren't any risk going forward and that happened in a number of small ways but that happened in a really significant way Nebuchadnezzar built a kind of idol 90 foot high put it on a massive plane and then he said to all the kind of key people in the nation gather together and when the music plays I want you to bow down and worship this statue I have put up. And the music plays. And you can imagine the scene. Thousands bow down. And there are three who remain standing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then the others around them kind of report on them and say to the king, King, look, there are three who didn't bow down. And so he calls them before him. And this is where we pick up the story in Daniel 3 from verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, "'Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'that you do not serve my gods "'or worship the image of gold I've set up? "'Now when you hear the sound of the horn, "'flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, "'if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, "'very good. "'But if you do not worship it, "'you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace.'" then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with them, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took them up, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. I want to speak today about bold integrity. What does it look like to have bold integrity? Bold integrity in times of testing. We all face difficult times from time to time. Maybe it's a time of pressure in your workplace, or a time of pressure in your school, or a time of pressure in your hospital, or a time of pressure in your studies. Maybe you've faced challenges in your home, or you've faced criticism or health challenges. Maybe your relationship with a friend has become a little bit complex, and you've lost a little bit of your confidence. You feel a little bit more fragile. When you place your trust in Jesus and you follow him, it doesn't mean you'll never face a test ever again. Just seen a baptism. After Jesus was baptized... He was sent out into the wilderness to be tested. Sometimes we face tests because we're doing all the wrong things and we're making mistakes. Sometimes we face tests because we're doing all the right things and following Jesus closely. And that means we'll face real testing. So how can we make sure we're prepared for times of testing when they come and that we can face them with calm confidence and not just survive in the midst of those tests, but even thrive through them? Well, that's exactly what this passage speaks to. And the first thing we see here is how important it is to increase your integrity. Now, integrity is a highly valued character trait. It's often tops the list of what people most admire in other people. But what it actually means, as you'll know, is an undivided life. A life without partitions. There's a consistency to people with integrity. They're the same in different places and with different people. If you've got integrity, you're the same over coffee, after church, on a Sunday morning as you are in a nightclub at 3 a.m. on a Friday night. Oh, one person. (laughs) Um, You know, you're the same chatting to people on a Sunday as you are when you're negotiating that deal on a Tuesday afternoon. There's a consistency to you. And because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were exiles in Babylon, their integrity was directly, intentionally under threat. They were put into leadership positions, they were the brightest and the best, in order that they would be influenced and shaped by the Babylonian culture around them and the people around them. The aim was to subtly shape them and remove what made them distinct. So they would look Sound and act the same as everyone else with their food, their clothing, their culture. And then the real test comes along. Nebuchadnezzar puts up a huge gold statue 27 meters high in a large open field. He assembles everyone, and when the music plays, they're supposed to bow down and worship this image of gold. So it's obvious who does, and it's obvious who doesn't. And you can just imagine the huge social pressure. Everyone else falls down, and you're thinking, do I do the same? Imagine being surrounded by all the most influential people in your nation, and they all do one thing, and you're trying to resist that. It's a clever strategic move by Nebuchadnezzar, because he knows, he knows that there are many people from different backgrounds and faiths in his nation, and rather than target people's personal private faith what he's enforcing is what happens in public so he's saying you know in public you have to worship the statue like everyone else in public you have to look the same you have to act the same you have to worship the same now you can have a private personal faith but that's behind closed doors that starts when you go home and it ends when you leave home but in public you can't take it there. You can't take it into the public square. And Nebuchadnezzar is rooting out anyone who thinks that their personal faith should influence their public actions. And it's so subtle because you can think, I'm just going along with it in public. What's the harm? You know, what are the risks? But the risk is your faith kind of kind of diminishes into a set of private beliefs rather than something that has the potential to shape your life, shape the life of the people around you, the people in your workplace, even transform your communities, your workplaces, your contexts, and your cities. And it's interesting because today we have a measure of this kind of pressure. You know, I don't know how you find it when you're having a conversation on a Monday morning over coffee and someone says, what did you do at the weekend? You know, he said, oh, I did loads of fun things on a Saturday. Oh, great, what did you do on Sunday? I went to church. It's tricky. You feel pressure about saying it. I still remember, you know, it's easy now. You know, the iPhone's been out for like 13 years. Apps have been out for 12 years. I can sit on a bus or a train and read my Bible. No one knows what I'm doing. I used to have to get on the train and pull out this and it feels like an act of rebellion. People kind of look at you like, what is that? What is that relic? What are you reading? I still remember getting early to work and um, feeling really convinced I should read my Bible before I started my work day. So I'd get in early, I'd sit down at my desk, I'd read my Bible, and then I'd hear the person I shared an office with coming down the corridor, He's a bit slower started than me, and, um, and he came in, and the temptation was just to go, you know, and just put it to one side. It's a subtle pressure. You don't want to look different. We want to look the same as everyone else. And the three see that. And when thousands bow, they remain standing. We just picture the scene. And it's interesting because it doesn't work to let your, you know, if they say, don't, don't let your private faith shave your public shape your public life. It doesn't quite work because the Christian faith has never been a private thing. Actually, what happens over time, if if you say, well, I'm just not going to take my private faith into the public space, what happens is your public behavior starts to shape your private faith. When I was training to be a barrister at law school, there was this added part of law school training where you had to go to these dinners and um, you had to go to these big dining halls with candles and everyone was dressed very smartly in three-piece suits and gowns and it was a little bit like Harry Potter meets kind of suits. That was kind of the vibe. (laughs) And um, And you would go in and you'd you'd sit with a senior barrister and a senior judge and then you and someone else. And the idea was expressly to kind of shape you. And there was lots that was great and brilliant about that. And I still remember, I, I was commuting in from my home in Luton. I still remember coming back after the first one. And my little brother um, was saying, well, how was it? What happened? And I said, well, you, you know, you wore a gown. You wore a three-piece suit. He said, all right. I said, went into this hall. It was like Harry Potter candles, you know, three-course meal. He said, OK. And, I sa- and then he said, and then you sit down with these senior people. He said, all right. I said, there's a grace in Latin. He said, oh. And then I said, and then he said, what happened at the end of the meal? I said, then they brought out port. He said, port. And I said, yeah. They brought out a little glass of port and you had to drink the port. And he said, did you drink the port? And I said, yeah. And he said, did you enjoy it? And I said, yeah. And he said, you've changed. (laughs) You've changed, Steve. And I was like, But he was, in a way, he was true. I mean, it was kind of shaping me. And I realized, the thing was, it was great. I loved it. But no one talked about faith. I didn't feel like I could talk about faith. It was a bit awkward. The only Christian bit was in Latin. I didn't understand Latin then. I understand a little bit now. And, um, and I was like, it was shaping me. And I realized I had to put something in to keep my integrity. So I found two other people on my course who were both Christians. And I said, look, I know it sounds crazy, but can we meet up just for like half an hour on a Friday every, every week or every other week? just chat, maybe pray, and just keep each other accountable, because I'm worried this is like shaping me, and I'm, I'm going I'm to become more and more private about my faith, and they're like, okay, cool, and it was amazing, we did it week in, week out, week in, week out, week in, week out, they loved it, I loved it, just able to look in each other's eyes, say, how are you actually finding it, and then after nine months, like the challenge came, I was with this kind of senior barrister, the judge, and one of them said to me, why, why do you want to be a barrister? And now the honest answer to that question was because I felt God was calling me to be a barrister. But I hadn't heard the word God in nine months in that context. So I thought, that's a bit awkward. I can't really say that. But then I thought, this is like a test. So I said, I, 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 think, I think it's because I think God is calling me to be a barrister. And the first guy, he looked really confused, like he'd misheard. He said, what did you say? That? And I said, I, I, think, I think it's because God is calling me to be a barrister. And he was like... And then the second guy, I think he was even more confused. He was like, do you have his phone number? (laughs) And, um, And I said, no, no, I just, I like pray. And then I had this sense and, you know, it was an interesting conversation, but the test came. What have you got in your life to help you increase your integrity? You know, when the pressure comes, if you don't have integrity, everything will collapse. There's a moment where the walls that you put up in your life collapse. And then who are you? But if you've got integrity, then you can stand firm even when the testing comes. Sometimes people say, you know, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one's watching. And it is. But sometimes integrity is doing the right thing when everyone is watching. And you're still obedient to God. Increase your integrity. And then secondly, test your courage. Because they stand. Thousands bow and they remain standing because of the integrity they had. Test your courage. But the thing about courage is it's revealed in the test. You don't know how much courage you have until you face the test. Courage isn't in the absence of fear. It's feeling the fear and still doing the right thing. And courage, in some ways, is energy which is released in defense to protect something that you care about something that you love and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego are pulled before Nebuchadnezzar for refusing to bow to the idol and they haven't gone looking for a fight they haven't been poking people they haven't been agitating it's come to them and when the tests come they've taken a stand and so Nebuchadnezzar gives them a last last chance bow or die and they say, they could have said, well, you know, we've made our point. <laughs> we made it very clear. We stood up when thousands weren't watching, you know, we're watching. You know, everyone knows we're Christians. Everyone knows we're followers of God now. It's like they could have said that. They could have said, you know, what? No point in being silly about it. Don't really want to die. <laughs> could have argued their case. But they respond calmly and confidently with extraordinary composure and courage. We don't need to defend ourselves. The God we serve is able to and will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But if not, we will not worship the image of gold you've set up. Extraordinary in that context. Courage in the test. And I see that in you. I've seen that this week. Last week we started our series on Daniel. And a member of our congregation is involved in research into tech companies. And he had hit a roadblock in his research, because he'd been asking tech companies to disclose some data to him so he could do research on it. But as you can imagine, tech companies are sometimes a little bit twitchy about disclosing data, about how they operate. And so it was tied up in admin and legal stuff, and it had been going on for weeks and months, and it hit a dead end. And and people around him were saying, well, just, just kind of, just get it, just get it another way. And there was a way he could kind of scrape it from the websites, but he It felt like a gray area, and he felt like that wasn't quite right, but he thought, well, maybe I have to do that. You know, everyone's kind of nudging me in that direction. It doesn't feel right to me, but maybe I should just go along with that. And then at our 6 p.m. service, he felt really convicted last Sunday. He said, no, that's not right. I don't feel comfortable like that. I'm not going to do that. And so he came home that night, and he said, God, I'm going to take a stand on this issue of integrity. I'm not going to do that, and that will mean that my research comes to an end now quite a terrifying thing. He wrote an email to, uh, one last email to the tech company um, on Sunday night, went to bed, woke up in the morning, still felt peace about his decision. He phoned his parents and said, just wanted to let you know, um, I feel this is an issue of integrity for me, so I can't pursue this research anymore, and um, I'm going to have to withdraw. And (laughs) it's amazing, his mum said, Good decision. (laughs) All the money, all the time. And she said, you know, you can't take a research degree to heaven. Jesus cares about your heart. So if you think this is the right thing, do it. Amazing. Put down the phone. It must have been terrifying. Put down his phone. The same minute he got an email from the tech company in the U.S., And they said, here's all the data you need. That email was sent at 3 a.m. on a Sunday night. That's miraculous. That God would wake up a legal admin person in a tech company at 3 a.m. to respond and to allow the data to come through. I find that really moving. I find that really powerful. They're so confident here. I mean, listen to them, you know, they're they're not concerned. We don't have to defend ourselves. We haven't done anything wrong. But the God we serve is able to and will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Extraordinary confidence in God's miraculous power to change the facts on the ground. But then they've got no doubt in God's power to deliver them. But then they say this, and these are three of the most important words in the Old Testament, possibly in the Bible. Three words which have the power to transform our faith and our entire life. But if not. God is able to save us, and we believe he will. But if not, we're still not going to bow down to your idol. Now that's a different kind of faith. Because there's a faith it's a faith that says, I know you can deliver me. I trust in your, that you will. But my devotion is not dependent on your deliverance. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I will obey you even if it costs me. You see, faith grows when we pray for things we need and good things and we get them. We experience peace and joy and protection and blessing. That's a faith that's supported by our circumstances. That's a powerful thing. That's an important thing. That's what my friend experienced on Monday morning. Extraordinary, miraculous provision in response to a stand of integrity. But then there's a faith which is only forged when things don't turn out the way you hoped. I wanted this to happen, and it hasn't. I wanted that relationship to come through, and it hasn't. I I prayed for that person to be healed, and they weren't. I hope for this. I long for this. I know you're able to do it, but if not, I'm not going to stop trusting you. I'm not going to walk away. You know, one is reliant on your circumstances. It'll be up and down with the changing fortunes and tides of life. The other is resilient and as strong as rock it's secure even when things are rocky because it says it's a faith that says you know it's never just about a particular set of circumstances it's never just about a particular blessing you know whether god comes through for me when i stick my neck out i know he can but if it's not the right time if it's not the right way or if there's some other reason i won't ever understand this side of eternity i'm going to keep worshipping you in this test because I'm captivated by who you are and what you've done, and I'll trust you even when I can't make sense of what you're doing. That's but if not faith. To say my obedience, my worship, my praise is not dependent on your provision. That takes courage. Courage that God is sovereign. Courage that God is working things out to glorify his name, and we can play any part in that. Courage that he can turn even things which are intended for harm and are confusing and painful for good and for his glory. That is courage. How do we grow that kind of courage? Courage is energy released to protect something you love. You grow that kind of courage by seeing afresh who Jesus is and what he's done and focusing on that. And then thirdly, get close to Jesus. In the Old Testament, fire signified testing. Times of challenge and refining. They're thrown in the furnace. It's so hot, the people who throw them in die. And Kim Nebuchadnezzar is watching. He says, weren't there three men we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. If people are watching how you face trials and challenges right now, and your witness is not necessarily whether you're delivered from that fire or not, but it's how you act in the midst of those tests. You have a unique testimony to the people close to you about the way you go through the tests of life. Sometimes Jesus saves us from the test. Sometimes he saves us through the test. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through fire, you will not be burned. It is the way Nebuchadnezzar described the four person, like the son of the gods. Their God sent his angel. And it strongly suggests, actually, most commentators think that this is Jesus. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus who comes and protects them and accompanies them. I love this They're in the greatest moment of trial in their life. Thinking death is impending. In a furnace that's been heated seven times hotter than it needs to be heated. And Jesus comes and just hangs out. He's like, walks around. How's it going? All right, yeah, good. It's exciting, isn't it? I mean, it's just extraordinary. (laughs) Bet you thought you were going to (laughs) die. Bet you don't, you haven't. Stay here for a bit longer. See how much fuel they've got? I mean, it's extraordinary. (laughs) In their moment of greatest trial, Jesus is right there next to them. Sometimes you face great tests that would normally sink you, but when you realize Jesus is beside you, with you, you realize it's actually an opportunity to know him on a much deeper level. The tests tend to strip away all of the things we normally build our lives on, our finances or our health or our friendships or our success or our achievements or our connections, they often get stripped away by the fires and the storms of life. And that's an opportunity to lean on Jesus in a whole new way, in a unique way in tests, I think. Jesus comes close to us because there's an ability he has to use the pressure that's on us when we're facing a test. To to create something, to forge something beautiful within us. It's in the fire that gold is refined. I think of my friend. She was in her 20s and um, had a really tough time. All through her 20s. For year upon year upon year. And actually it still continues today. But, But she would have to go for medical treatment again and again and again. It was like nothing sorted it. There wasn't a quick fix It was long-term, it was painful, it was exhausting, it was difficult. And she would spend just days in hospital. Painful treatment. And I remember her saying, you know, when I'm in the hospital room, Jesus is so close to me. He's so real to me. Jesus is so real to me now. I feel him beside me as I go through this trial. She said, he's so close just know he's right there. Never felt that before. But she said, I feel it now. You know, he's with you in the testing. He's with you in the hospital room. He's with you when you go to see the doctor. He's with you in the exam hall. He's with you around the board table when it's tricky. He's with you when it feels like your family is falling apart. He's with you when the relationship you put your hopes in falls apart and it seems to be crumbling. He's with you When the pressure is too much and you're waking up at 3 a.m. and you can't get back to sleep and you're not sure it's all going to turn out okay. Jesus is particularly drawn to those who are facing a time of testing. Why? I think the reason is because he knows just how it feels. Because he faced a time of testing so great that his sweat drops of blood. And as he knelt down, looking ahead to what he would have to do on the cross, he said, Father, all things are possible for you. If you're willing, take this cup from me. And then he said this, yet not what I will, but what you will. You can save me from this. All things are possible for you. But if not, I'm going to go through with it. That's but if not faith. That's why I think Jesus loves to draw close to those who say, Lord, I trust you even in the testing. Lord, I worship you even though it hurts. Lord, even though I'm confused, I'm not going to lose sight of your purpose for my life. Would you use even this difficult thing to work something in me, to glorify your name, to show people who you are and what you have done for me? And when the world sees that, it's a powerful witness. I mean, look at Nebuchadnezzar. Praise be to God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's rescued his servants because they were willing to give their own lives rather than worship anyone else. That's powerful. That's powerful. You might be here and you might be thinking, I'd love to have that faith. Maybe you're thinking, oh, but there was this thing I did and that thing I did and that thing I did and there was that. Well, that's okay. You can say, God, I'm sorry about that. We can trade stories afterwards. I've messed up my life more times than you have. But it's not too late. With Jesus, you have another chance. And there's an opportunity for us today to say, God, we want to be a people of bold integrity. Whether no one's watching or everyone's watching. Whether no one in my company cares or suddenly it's an issue about which everyone is going to know about. Whether I feel like I'm the only one and there's hundreds, maybe thousands who wouldn't agree with me. I'm not going to miss this opportunity to be faithful to you, to be obedient to you. Why? Because my courage is sparked by your great courage and great love for me. Because you didn't shrink from what it would cost to save me. I don't want to shrink from what it might cost to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.